Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Thank you for joining us in our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. Let's begin by imagining you're in church leadership and someone notifies you that due to a recent evangelistic meeting, a couple different people want to see you for more information about the gospel and also about joining your church fellowship. You then ask who the different parties are. You hear the name of the first and immediately you know who this guy is. Uh, He's a prominent, affluent, uh, family man, moral, influential, and upstanding citizen, a pillar of the community. You straighten up in your seat a little bit. Okay, well, this should be good. You then hear the name of the second. You've never heard of this person. And someone just points outside and says, oh, there she is right there. It's that young child running around with her friends. Now, in this make-believe situation, uh, which meeting would you be more eager for? Which would you think has the potential for going well? Now, if we're going to be honest, many of us uh, might not be so harsh as to refuse to meet with a little girl, but she would be of second-rate importance to the first individual. Now, this gut reaction that I think a lot of us would have reveals how upside-down things work in the kingdom of God. In this episode, we'll be considering Matthew 19, verses 13 through 26. It contains the story of the rich young man and begins with a famous story about little children coming to Jesus. This short little account functions as kind of a convenient bridge to what uh, happens before. On the one hand, it's of a piece with the preceding material about divorce and the permanency of marriage. Although Jesus challenges people to hate your father and mother and leave everything to follow him, this doesn't mean that he's anti-family. No, he insists on radical fidelity to one's spouse and considers children to be an important aspect of society. Furthermore, this little story picks up the previous unit about the need to be like little children in 18, 1-4. There we talked about how being like a little child carries the idea of being insignificant, or uh, what we might say the low man on the totem pole. If the analysis in the previous episode is correct, divorce should be seen as a subset, then, of forgiveness, with the stuff about little children forming kind of a frame around the priority that God gives toward his child. But the most significant observation about its placement is being back-to-back with the rich young man. It confronts us with a clash of figures, a scenario not unlike the one we imagined just earlier. Uh, The brief mention of Jesus receiving little children then is a foil for the next account. In other words, this reinforces the importance of not focusing too narrowly on just one of the accounts, studying them, let's say, on a Wednesday night meeting and then moving on to the next one. Instead, we need to be thinking about how stories relate to one another and how they mutually inform one another. Uh, Only studying one of these would not allow an interpreter to get the bigger picture of their significance. I like the way R.T. France puts it. He says, quote, Here is another approach from someone outside the disciple group. But this man's social standing is in marked contrast to the social insignificance of the children. As a result, the same disciples who in 1913 proved so unwelcoming to those who came to 
bother Jesus, now appear to be so favorably impressed by this potential new recruit that they can hardly believe their ears when they hear Jesus send him away with his tail between his legs. Jesus, who has just confounded them by welcoming the little ones, here makes matters worse by turning away a great one. If ever there was a promising candidate for the kingdom of heaven, surely this was he, young, moral, spiritually in earnest, and wealthy. If such a man cannot be saved, who can? End quote. So, uh, all that to say that it's important to compare uh, the account of the little children with what then happens with this rich young man. So, keep your eye out for how these two accounts interact and inform one another as I read our text, Matthew 19, starting in verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what still do I lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God... All things are possible. Let's spend the time that we have focusing on how this man uh, is described. For receiving such little treatment in a relatively small narrative, he's an exceptionally round character. That is, he's not flat or one-sided. In contrast to the little children, he is eventually described as a young man. That is, someone who has come of age. He has many possessions and therefore represents in the wider discussion those who are rich. The incredulity of the disciples, who then can be saved, most likely stems from a view at that time, still prevalent today, that wealth is a sign of God's blessing for obedience. And so this man's riches indicate that he is someone important. But this is the problem then. He is too big for the kingdom. He needs to be little, like a child. Instead, he's big, like a camel, and so he can't fit through the eye of a needle. Now, there have been various attempts to water down this expression throughout history. It used to be that this was often explained by postulating a special gate called the eye of a needle, through which a camel could go through if it was stripped of its load and got on its knees. Now, you know, that sort of thing preaches well, but actually there's no evidence for the existence of this gate in antiquity. Some later manuscripts actually change one small letter from camelon to camelon, meaning a cord or rope. 
but the overwhelming evidence suggests camel is the original reading. And now the whole idea of what Jesus is saying is something that's absurd. Camels can't go through eyes of needles. So too, rich people can't go into the kingdom. They are too far from being a little child, of which we read, such are the kingdom. This man illustrates the importance of what Jesus said in 18.3, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. From the very first word that the man says, we get uh, incredible insight into his situation. He addresses Jesus as teacher. Now, Matthew's version of the story uh, has removed Mark's adjective good from describing teacher uh, to the thing which must be done. Uh, This only adds to the inadequacy of the address. The address teacher, in contrast to Mark, is not one that you find on the disciples' lips in Matthew. Of course, Jesus is a great teacher, but this man has wisely come to Jesus with the all-important question. But if Jesus is only a teacher, there's no salvation. The whole account here culminates in not only the command to sell everything and give it to the poor, but then with a call to discipleship, follow me. Jesus doesn't end up giving the man just something else to do. Buckle down and just do the law more. Better moral advice. Uh, He offers himself and says, follow me. And so long as Jesus remains as merely a teacher in the individual's mind, this won't make any sense. It it won't be done. So first, signaled by the address teacher, the man is described as uncommitted to Jesus. And this, of course, is his downfall. But that's not to say that the person is a licentious prodigal sinner. He is moral, an upstanding citizen. Notice that his claims to have kept the law are never contradicted. There's, of course, a sense in which no one can keep the law perfectly. There is only one who is good, God. The reference in Matthew 19, 17 to God being the one good seems to be an allusion to the Shema, the great confession of Deuteronomy 6, 4. Recall that Deuteronomy 6, of course, is after Deuteronomy 5, which is where we read the Ten Commandments. So the fact that, that the good God is one is motivation for obeying his words. And this is what the man claims. And, and when he says he has, Jesus doesn't contradict him. He's like Paul in Philippians 3.6, who says, Concerning the law, blameless. Keeping doesn't require sinless perfection. His life is characterized by one of obedience to the law. And yet, the man is spiritually perceptive enough to know that this is not enough. And so he asks, What do I lack? He knows that keeping these rules does not somehow add up to salvation. Though Jesus starts by saying, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments, notice that this is not where he ends. He ends with an invitation to follow him. This invitation isn't less than a determination to keep the law, but it is much more than that. Before, we saw how this man was too big to be saved, too important, too rich, too old, too grown up, if we could put it that way. But we could think about it from another angle. Not only is the man too big, but he's also too little. Not only is the problem that he has grown up too much, but also that he hasn't grown up enough. Look at verse 21 again. It says, if you want to be perfect, we considered this earlier in a lesson on the Sermon on the Mount, the word here is uh, complete, mature. It's the Greek word teleos, 
uh, since there is so much interaction about little children before and in chapter 18, uh, there very well may here be a play on words. But what does Jesus mean by saying that the man needs to be mature or perfect? Well, uh, this is the abundant righteousness required to enter into the kingdom. And there the context is, uh, remember from chapter 5, not mere outward adherence, conformity to external rules, but a change of heart. Not only abstaining from adultery, for example, uh, but also not even lusting in your heart. Your righteousness must be whole, not partial or hypocritical, full inside and out. The young man is called to the same thing. For him, it requires learning the next lesson in the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot serve both God and money. Although from external perspectives, this man seemed to be respectable, moral, upstanding. His possessions were keeping him from Christ. That was the one thing he lacked. But to get to Jesus, the thing that he lacked, he would need to repent of his love of money. He's a brilliant picture of the question in 1626, when the Lord Jesus asks, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses his soul. For this individual to find his life, uh, which he knew that he lacked, and he wanted to enter the kingdom, he would have to lose the one that he had. Now, this doesn't mean that every person must renounce all their wealth in order to be saved. Uh, But it does mean, well, to use the earlier language of 18, 8 to 9, whatever eye, foot, or hand is keeping us from following Christ is better to chop it off than to be cast into hell. Uh, This man is, uh, in a kind of an ironic way, too big and too small for salvation. Too big, too important to completely cast himself at Jesus' feet in real repentance. And too small, too immature come to his senses and conclude that all that really mattered was following Jesus. Now, are such cases like this impossible ones? Well, yes, for us. No, for God. In situations like this, it is only God who can destroy uh, what the commentator John Nolan describes as, quote, the mesmerizing effect through which riches control those who possess them. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.